Welcome to the Invisible India podcast. I'm Jessica. And I'm Abhishek. We are a cross-cultural couple doing life in India, exploring the lesser-known mysteries of Indian culture, interviewing fascinating figures who have chartered new territories, and sharing life as we raise our multicultural family amongst the complexities of modern Indian life. Namaste Sablo, I'm Jessica. Welcome back to the Invisible India podcast. Last week, we talked with Tripti Lahiri, author of Made in India. And here, now this week, we're back with part two of Inequality and Opportunity. This is a conversation with Tripti on her book. We touch on so many topics of classism, casteism, the Indian economy, and of course, personalized conflicted feelings of being a a person of privilege in the midst of it all. This month, I'm doing a series on education and Indian literature. I'll be featuring other authors and folks involved in the literature field as well. Before we jump into the episode, I want to read a portion of Tripti's book, Made in India. This section is referring to folks from all over India who migrate to larger metropolitans for domestic work. Most of the women and young girls who come to Delhi as maids aren't fleeing the colorful violence of possibly being hacked to death with a machete or mown down with automatic rifles one Christmas Eve or being pierced through the heart with a handmade arrow. The vast majority are fleeing a far more mundane kind of violence. They are fleeing the daily violence of having to earn a handful of rice or dal by mending over thousands of times a day, sickle in hand, or chop scratchy bundles of wheat. They are fleeing the everyday violence of carrying loads on their heads for two rupees or four rupees ago, dozens of times a day under the blazing sun, to earn the grand sum of 100 rupees. But it's not as gloomy as all that. One Delhi-made broker explains the exodus with great simplicity. Those who don't have enough to eat, they come to fill their stomachs. Those who do have enough to eat, they come to send their children to school. If you haven't listened to part one yet, go back to last week's episode and hear the incredible conversation we had on part one. We're going to be building on that today's episode. And be sure to listen all the way to the end of today's episode to hear how you can get your hands on a signed copy of Made in India. Before we get into the episode with Tripti, I have some announcements. I am thrilled to share that we made some waves on the charts in the past month or so. So in Apple Podcast, we hit top 10 in the relationships category in Austria, Norway, and Switzerland. Top 50 in relationships category in China, Finland, France, Ireland, Singapore, and Taiwan. Top 100 in relationships in Australia, and just last week, the U.S., woohoo, Canada, Belarus, France, Hong Kong, Denmark, Germany, Great Britain, Japan, and the United Arab Emirates. We hit top 100 in society and culture in Canada, Hong Kong, India, where we are located, and New Zealand. Lots to celebrate. And we could obviously not do it without you guys who listen and subscribe. Oh my goodness, this is so amazing. And thank you so much for your support and for following us and for continuing to listen to the show. Side note, I'm going to be speaking at Podcast Movement 2021. So if you are a podcaster or want to be one, get your tickets. Tickets can be found on podcastmovement.com. 
online or in Nashville, Tennessee. I'm going to be joining online here from India, August 3rd to 5th. All right, let's dive in with the conversation with Tripti Lahiri. I think that having just been shaped by a lot of different places with a lot of different norms and thinking about about domestic help and about equality and inequality, I kind of came to this with sort of a schizophrenic attitude. On the one hand, if you ask me, yes, I do believe in inequality of everyone and that everybody's work is, is, is to be respected and honored. But then on an everyday basis, I don't necessarily think that I was behaving as if I, like demonstrating that always in my behavior. And I think for me, the book was also a way to kind of process like, why is it we might believe one thing, but then not really act that out in our everyday life. And I think this is a question that people are experiencing and processing in lots of different ways. It could be in issues in relation to race in the, in the US or in relation to caste or in relation to domestic health. I think we're, we're, we're very often not the people we want to be. For me, the realization of that, of like moving away from this blanket idea of like, yeah, I'm a good person, right? To realizing that, you know, not always, and it takes a lot of thinking and a lot of a lot of consciousness mm-hmm. in everyday life to not switch off and be an autopilot when you come home from your work in your real life. Yeah, it's a constant exercise and constantly, if you're in the position of privilege and, and the sort of upper position in a hierarchy set by society, whether or not you agree with that, you have to constantly yeah. do a lot of checking and thinking about like, well, in what way could I mm-hmm. try to be better? I know in the book I might come across as quite judgmental, but actually like the judgment is not necessarily mm-hmm. about other people. It's just as much for myself that um, I wanted mm-hmm. to, to be better. And I felt that I, I wasn't really being that as an, um, you know, as an, as an employer and as somebody who was for the first time. Because when I lived in the U.S. as an adult, I actually mm-hmm. never even had a cleaner. Yeah. Like it just, you know, we, I didn't have a big apartment. Uh, either it was dirty or I cleaned it myself. I'm actually like, kind of like cleaning. <laughs> so India as an adult was really the first time. And I also feel like I often want to tell people after the pandemic that I'm like, oh, I completely wrote the first book on false pretenses because I had one part-time employee. And I feel like that doesn't actually give you a full impression of what it involves if you have a multi-generational home. But then in this pandemic, I've had to like yes. do a lot of management of my parents' home, which is a much more traditional setup uh, where there are like full meals three times a day. Um, there's there's different kinds of staff of different cultural backgrounds. Uh, there's a lot of keeping between them that has to be managed. Um, mm-hmm. you know, there's a lot of meals that have to be arranged, mostly, <laughs> like, yes. mostly because there's a lot of staff. And I feel like I completely had a different impression and learned a lot uh, more uh, in the pandemic than I had known, even when I wrote the book. I feel like the book was a lot of like, uh, was was a very journalistic exercise in many ways, even though I put myself in it. Um, and I feel like in the pandemic, I've mm-hmm. like really had to contend hands on with like the whole piece that is being dependent mm-hmm. and needing other people, but then also having to work out whatever issues they have going on mm-hmm. and like try to be helpful. I can relate to that where my in-laws also have a much more traditional way that they manage their home. And even if you look in their refrigerator, it's a, it's a classic example. Our refrigerator is full of 15 different kinds of sauce. We have like Szechuan sauce and we have some pudina kichetni and we have mayonnaise and we have belka sharbat that I just made yesterday and all of these, all these little things like just full, full, full. And because we like a lot of different kinds of cuisine. And then if you go to my in-laws house, it's dahi, ajka sabzi, jo banega, 
टमाटर जितनी भी सब्जी वो लोग खाएंगे वो सब रखा हुआ है थोड़ा सा दूध है एक्चुअली दूध स्टेज आउटसाइड people and i hear this all the time you know wool apki dai we call uh, here in bihar it's a uh, dai as what we we call maids and um apki dai mate pe chara kiki and uh it's what's the fear of that like is she going to take advantage of you and i'm thinking who's in the position of power here and why are we so afraid that someone is going to take advantage of us do you have any thoughts on that um i mean yeah i've definitely heard that and i think the whole conversation about about market prices and we must be the market price don't go over the market price you know they'll get spoiled is a variation of this uh yeah. you know she'll sit on your head uh, fear um you know i i don't know um i don't 100% know what it's what it's related to like i can just maybe give the same sort of broad psychological theories um of that sociologists or others would um in delhi at least i think there's a lot of sort of paranoia and trauma from having had to uproot uh, from partition and come here and start again and i think um there's a lot of just sort of fearfulness about your place you know even if you're very very rich uh, and about the idea that like keeping the proper order of things uh, or or you could lose your spot maybe to somebody else i think there is a little bit of that driving some of this um uh, and maybe it's compounded by social changes of of uh more contemporary india where um you know as the government has tried to do things to like uh sort of affirmative action types of things to try to help people who have historically been disadvantaged other people have felt that they were losing their place you know in sure. the class system they wouldn't get a spot in university so easily their whole life could be set back so i think that in a country of a billion people where the opportunities are limited there are only so many spots in in colleges and there are only so many good jobs um i think there's a lot of yeah there's there is a lot of maybe fear and suspicion about your place in the world versus somebody else's and it, as strange as it, as it might seem um you know realistically what is the worst the person can do they they might ask for more money mm-hmm. or they might do less work in the hours that that they with you steal. Uh, or mm-hmm. they might leave you suddenly or or i guess the very worst possibility is they might steal something um i mean most of those things are not life shattering things and i also think there is a lot less stealing than than employers always tend to worry about like it really hasn't been my experience for example like i've left keys and um mm-hmm. you know and i've and i think that because people are very aware that they yeah. could be accused of stealing i think they are actually trying are like very often scrupulously honest you know about like accounting bills and things but nam ho jayega that's a big fear right mm-hmm. that you're going to tell everyone they did it and that's it's a factor yeah. of shame that kind of holds it together too i think it, it is some sort of a psychological trauma about your place in the world and it tends to be directed for whoever what whatever reason aren't really a threat to you you're much more of a threat to them because you could fire them any one day to the next you could in some cases mm-hmm. you know there are cases of employers beating their help you could 
I mean, what you can do to them is definitely many magnitudes of order worse than what they can right. most likely do to you. Uh, and I'm not, I'm not playing down that, yes, there are cases that we read about where, yes, maybe somebody comes out clarified a property. I'm not saying it never happens. It does. It can happen yeah. as well. But I don't think that those are. I think it's a lot more normal, sort of the everyday oppression going the other way mm -hmm. from the employer to the employee mm -hmm. versus from the employee to the. Yeah, good points. Let me read again from book. To be a servant in India today is in many ways an enterprise with much more uncertain outcome than in the past. If the relationships that prevailed in the past between sahabs and servants in Indian cities were plotted on a graph, I suspect they would make for a fairly flat line with small variations from one household to the next. In the past, the reward for being someone's servant was mainly reliable room and board. But now these relations make for a much more jagged line full of peaks and troughs. So just exactly what we were, we were discussing in the sense of like, what are the expectations of uh, what, what you're going to get? And I wonder if you can kind of tease this out. Yeah, I think that younger people of all stripes and regardless of what their parents do, like I think are, um, you know, are big dreamers. And there's that great book by Snigda Poonam exactly about young people in India. Um, so yeah, when I met people in their, in their 20s who uh, either were doing domestic work or their parents had done it, um, you know, they didn't seem to feel like that would be the be all and end all of their lives. Like they, they had aspirations and those aspirations um, might not always seem as gigantic. Like in some cases it was to have a job in a McDonald's or a job in a, in a, in a big basket, but actually, you know, by Indian standards, those are somewhat like secured, like those are better jobs than a lot of kinds of jobs out there. Um, but I also met people who, whose parents had been a domestic help um, and who were now like squarely what I would say, like white collar upper class Indians. You know, they, mm -hmm. um, you know, they were going to co good colleges. I think and they were planning to study abroad. Um, and I think in the future would, would also be writing about this topic in a very eloquent way, probably more eloquent than I could do because of having a personal experience. Um, and in that vein, I actually want to mention that the book by Baby Halter, which is, um, I think, one of the first books in India by somebody who um, had lived that experience of being a domestic worker and kind of went all the way from Bengal to, to, to Gurgaon. Um, and, and, people, and that book was really well received. I think people had a real hunger and knowledge to kind of hear more directly from, from someone about what their life experience had been and how, how maybe did, did she see her employers, you know? Um, I think it's something people are starting to be more interested and aware of, the idea that that person working for you isn't just, uh, you know, sort of someone in your house in a satellite of your life, but but actually, you can also be a satellite of their life. You know, you actually might be a small part of their, of a lot more that they have going on. You know, one thing that was super interesting for me was just to realize, like, uh, how much people did have going on. Like, in with the case of one woman who's Tamil, who lives in Delhi, that I profiled, uh, who had worked for my mom for a short period. Um, you know, she just had a very full life in her community. Like, she was an organizer. Uh, of sorts, she ran these savings committees, and because of the savings committee, she knew what was going on in people's houses. If she had heard that somebody's, you know, wife had died suddenly in suspicious circumstances, she would actually go there and talk to the person. Um, so, and I think similarly, I profiled this young woman, lovely, who was almost like the household at eighteen, the hmm. household leader of her house, hmm. of four sisters, and they had made the decision to stay in the city. 
when her family went back to Bengal because she was, you know, they had been to the village and they were like, you know, that's that's not for us. We're, we're, we're city people now. Um, so I think people have a lot more uh, aspirations. Maybe, maybe it's because of television. Mm-hmm. A lot of people have phones and they can kind of see what there is to be had out there in a way that maybe before the 90s people weren't aware. Um, so there's a lot more aspiration and in some cases... Uh, people are actually mm. like really changing their lives. Um, that's not everybody. I think those are unique people um, who really like they get an opportunity and they mm-hmm. just they run with it and make the most of it. But but it is happening more mm. more now than it probably ever mm. did before. Although I worry with the pandemic and a lot of people set back in their economic situation, I wonder to what extent yeah. some of those people trying to make those groups of class. Uh, trying to get ahead and, and trying to become upwardly mobile, I wonder to what extent it's very precarious. And, and I feel like the pandemic may have set back a lot of people's dreams, particularly yes. in those social classes where you don't have a lot of buffer for mistakes and accidents and yeah. errors, you know? Yes, we've we've seen that quite a bit firsthand in here in Bihar, and I'm sure you have too in your own circle. Um, you know, we work, we have a nonprofit here, and um, we've definitely seen so many of you know loss of income loss of um uh, you know of 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 even ha- people in the household who were uh you know the single earners for the household and now what what's going to happen next um you know certain kids are going to have to you know get married off early or different things like that um, there'll be additional pressure for dowry and certain things like this yeah one of the things i worry like you said is especially for school for kids in school because for so many people in the the economic strata where people are are struggling the only way out of poverty is education and when your schools are closed for we're looking at probably almost two years (laughs) if we want to be realistic with the with the current lockdown and then with possible third wave of covid coming and other lockdowns that may occur you know we're looking at two years of um, education, and that's if you're able to even go back uh, in, in some of these communities. You know, people like me and and other middle class people. Okay, fine. Everyone has a mobile phone. You can sit and do the Zoom class. You have a, a mother at home, most likely, who's not working that can help you to study and keep up with the online class. What about these kids whose parents are are domestic? labor and working they're they're all working and they're not going to get on the zoom class and listen to their ma'am talk to them in english all day i mean three kids crowding around a single mobile phone and they all have their different classes it's just not going to happen so it's really a tragedy i think to see um how many kids are going to get left behind here in this generation and i don't know i'm, I'm hopeful and i'm hoping that we'll see some surprises but if we look at it realistically, I think you're right that it, it is setting going to set people back quite a bit. I want to ask a little question here, a little bit about dehumanization of, of labor. And uh, another quote from your book is talking about the Mem Sahab and how much there is an inequality of what you're allowed to spend on yourself and um, the way you need to kind of portray yourself as a domestic helper versus how uh, Mem can spend her money. A quote from your book, they'll spend 5,000 rupees on themselves at a nightclub in one evening. But if we ask for 2,000 rupees more a month, it's too much money. A house helper, Delhi says, speaking of her employer and the priority given. Uh, 
there are such different standards for what I can spend as a wealthy person and what the standard can be for a person of more humble means. And I feel like you also mentioned that, you know, we have all these machines now that do the work for us, but you need someone to run the machine. And I feel, I don't know, I feel like there's a bit of dehumanization which is happening here. And I wonder if you can kind of unpack that a little bit. Yeah, I think one way in which I really, um, really have noticed it is, I think when flare-ups happen or when, um, so for example, I did find several cases where uh, people in Delhi had hired somebody who's Muslim. You know, a lot of uh, workers come from West Bengal now and and they, and and I think it's a state with a, with the Muslim, I don't know the exact percentage, but it's got, you know, it's got a Muslim population um, from, you know, from long time. Uh, and when people are looking for someone and they need a worker, they, they don't have an issue to hire to hire that person. Or in some cases, I think workers occasionally change their names to, to sound um, maybe less Muslim so that it won't be an issue because there are some workers who actively don't, uh, some employers who actively don't want to hire someone Muslim. But then, uh, you know, if an issue happens, like if there's an altercation or I think in Noida there was a situation where, um, you know, a, a maid had not come home and then the, the workers from the nearby neighborhood came to that building and they were angry and, and threw stones and so forth. You know, suddenly everybody was like, oh, these people are not... Uh, you know, what right do they have to do all this? You know, they're not even um, uh, Indian, they're Bangladeshi. So like in one fell swoop, it's like they went from being your house help to being like a foreigner mm -hmm. with no rights. Wow. Um, and I think, so th this is one way I think in which people suddenly um, can turn on their workers. You know, you didn't have an issue with that worker. You knew that they were Bengali speaking or Muslim when, when you hired them, no doubt. But then suddenly when they're opposing you, then they become, you know, an illegal or undocumented worker who shouldn't even be here in the first place. Um, and I think that thing, you know, that is sort of a demonstration of this to some extent. You know, the moment you start to say somebody doesn't have rights or they don't have the right to complain, you're already kind of saying, you know, that is a form of dehumanization, mm -hmm. I think. Mm -hmm. So I think I see this coming up a lot uh, in terms of, you know, particularly around issues of, of religion, I think. Because in India, uh, you know, there are uh, a lot of people do come sometimes from tribal regions. They may be Christian or they might come from West Bengal, often to Delhi. That's been a sending region. And then, you know, they could be Muslim. Uh, and so, so these issues are also playing out where um, sometimes people are othering their worker on these grounds as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think we see here in, in, in Bihar, I think we're especially aware of that. I think because Biharis in general get othered a lot themselves, fairly you know educated, white collar Biharis often feel that sense of ostracization themselves. Uh, you know, oh, you don't look like a Bihari or well, you don't talk like a Bihari or it's like... I, I hear this all the time, even you know, being married to a Bihari, I even got pushback from my other Indian friends of, and I'm like, yeah. Uh, so there, there are these own, uh, these senses of feeling like the other, and then in a sense, rather than mm -hmm. having compassion or kind of saying, we shouldn't do this to others, we, we and I'm, I'm putting myself in this own, categories like we do it even more to other people that are in within our own group so i think there's a mm -hmm. there's a real sense of um of hierarchy of those people and these people and then i've i haven't quite 
I'm not slamming on Bihar necessarily, but I just see that very starkly here where I think people want to be differentiated even more from those Biharis that go and do mazdoor kakam and who do, you know, jharu pocha and who are sweepers. We don't want to be associated with those Biharis. And um, I think it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's sad to see that. And I, I wonder if that's maybe even more of a... Uh, uh, or, or just a reaction that takes place. Yeah. Since we are talking about books, I want to tell you about Karadi Tales. They have just adorable resources, chapter books and some bilingual books, many English books for kids as well. If you've ever seen the Karadi Tales uh, videos with Karadi the bear, the na 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 <laughs> My kids love those. There's some really incredible stories about like mythology and Indian culture and just adorable stories rooted in Indian culture that they've done several videos on involving animals and different characters. As far as their book selection, I did a few read-alouds on my social media pages with my kids. Look on my Instagram for two books I got recently. Uh, number one was Tukpa for All, which is a book about a Tibetan family and tells story through food. The second one was Magic in My Fingers. It's a story about a boy and a girl whose father wants to teach them Indian classical music. These books were both in English and so cute. So go to my offers page and discover more about Karar Details. InvisibleIndiaPodcast.com slash offers. The links are also in the show notes. If you're looking for more bilingual or Indian language books, Tulika is an incredible place to look as well. I probably own more Tulika books than any other for Hindi language books for my kids. And these are also great for adult learners as well. Tulika has an incredible amount of resources for multilingual kids books. And they have a number of Indian languages available. Uh, I have an interview coming up with an author from Tulika. So hold on and that will be coming soon. I also have a number of suggestions on Hindi kids books for my Hindi starter kit for kids. It's on my website, invisibleindiapodcast.com, and there will be a prompt to sign up and download that free PDF from the my website if you just go down to the bottom of the page. So yes, Karadi Tales and Tulika Books, that's T-U-L-I-K-A, and Karadi Tales is K-A-R-A-D-I. Before we get back to the show, be sure to go to our YouTube and get a glimpse of Tripti and I speaking together. The video conversations on our YouTube channel, Invisible India Podcast. You can subscribe there. We put up all kinds of things, occasionally vlogs. I just put up a highlights reel from Abhishek and my wedding because we just celebrated our, our 11th anniversary. Yikes! So yes, the highlights reel from our video is on the YouTube. Be sure to follow us on social media. Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and TikTok. And if you haven't signed up for our newsletter that comes out every two weeks, that is also on our site. I send updates about the episodes and other offers that are coming out every couple of weeks. So, all right, let's get back to Tripti. Again, I think related to issues of like insecurity about your position in society, um, you know, one way to... And we see this in, in schools as well. One way to, to show you're, you're better than the other mm-hmm. kids or you're not as bad as sure. that one kid that everybody picks on is to like also pick on that kid. Um, and I think that this kind of like looking down on others, 
or joining people who look down on a certain group or a certain profession is a way of, of being like, yeah, you know, we're, we're, we've come a long way from that or we're not part of that. Um, and I think the stigmatization is a, is also relates to something else that like was kind of a concern to me when reporting this book. Um, and I think, again, it's a, a issue we've seen during the pandemic. Um, it's just, it's very hard to count anything in India. Um, you know, we've seen that with deaths in the pandemic, but even, you know, when I was trying to figure out how, how many such workers really are there, are, is the trend going up? Is the trend going down? Because at the same time, we see um, all the reports about how women are dropping out of the workforce. If they're dropping out of the workforce, chances are they're doing more of their own housework, then maybe they don't need as many domestic help. So maybe the trend is down. But, you know, I just saw such a wide range of statistics on this. Mm-hmm. And I think, uh, you know, A, there's a lack of interest in officialdom, maybe, to really capture uh, all these different kinds of professions. Um, and then also, mm-hmm. conversely, there could be a certain amount of stigma. Yeah. Maybe you mm-hmm. work as a cook in a house, but maybe you say that you work as a cook in a restaurant or something, you know? Um, so I think like people often ask me and I thought you might ask me uh, uh, at the beginning, like, uh, you know, how, how many yeah. workers are there now? And I have to say, you know, um, it's very hard to tell. And, and the number is probably less than you might think, um, just given from the personal experience mm-hmm. that a lot of us have where we do see domestic mm-hmm. help in our houses or those of people mm-hmm. we know. Uh, but it's actually really not representative that everybody has domestic help, yeah. obviously, every, mm-hmm. in there's not a well-off country and everybody doesn't yeah, have domestic help. Um, one of the things that you mentioned in your book was about the Lakshman Rekha, which comes from a story in the Ramayana, where in modern society, you know, it, it was when uh, uh, mm-hmm. Sita had been left by uh, Lakshman because they had to go and uh, uh, Lakshman had drawn a line for her. You know, don't leave the home. And if you cross this line, anything bad could happen to you. This is your protective line. And so mm. as you paralleled in the book, in modern society, we have this idea that the good women don't go out and are roaming around and doing this. All these ideas of uh, we divide the the good women from the bad women with the Lakshman Rekha and how much you're staying at home. And uh, such thinking it, it artificially labels women. And um, I think this is something that I struggle with quite a bit. And I want to hear your thoughts on this as, as well and how it, it's it's of course does this apply to domestic workers are they also kind of held by the same standard since they have to work and have to go out or is this like playing into this whole idea of uh you know running the perfect household kind of makes you a, a good indian woman yeah i think there are a lot of these ideas at play still and they do come up in so many ways um and it's sort of interesting, I mean, this question you raised has been in my m- mind this week as well, because uh, I'm sure you've seen the news reports, there's a lot of kind of uh, upset among women about a particular judgment that has come out in a sexual assault case for the way um, for the way the judge has written about, you know, what should a sexual assault victim be like or how should she comport herself? Um, but I think that is a larger judgment that, that does take place uh, for women uh, across the board, like... Um, and particularly in relation to matters of the house and home. Um, 
I think, you know, domestic workers can experience it a lot of different ways. Like they might be the breadwinner of their family and that might expose them to suspicion um, and anger from a husband who maybe isn't being able to earn money and who's uh, suspicious of his wife being out of the house a certain amount of time. Uh, in a house as well where, where a woman works, if she doesn't dress or act in a certain way, people will uh, criticize her for being uppity or they'll be suspicious of her as well in different ways. Jada modern madbanna, yes, up. Modern Yeah. yeah. Uh, or, or, or she wear jeans. Like, I think, uh, you know, all women, but especially domestic workers, if they start wearing jeans, people are like, oh, what is happening? You know, uh, it's like some code for like, this woman is loose or, or um, you know, so, and actually this is something that like, uh, so the young, so lovely, who's one person I profile, like this was an issue that they had when they went back to the village and they were wearing their city clothes of capris and t-shirts and they were like, you know, what is this reaction we're getting? Um, so I think this is something that Indian women at different ends of the class spectrum are experiencing in different ways. Um, it's a shared experience, but it doesn't always make us more sympathetic to one another, mm-hmm. uh, I think. Um, and that's because for various reasons, you know, it's it's more important to be allied to a man in your same class. Uh, again, it's a question of networking and power uh, versus to be allied with a woman of a different class. And I mm-hmm. think that is something we see play out in India a lot. Um, even though, you know, I I might have taken out this this uh, this analogy later on because I, you know, I wasn't sure if it worked or if it made sense. Um, but I had said it. I had written in a draft that uh, just as there's a caste system, you know, across every state and across every city, and every in every family there's a caste system, and of, of, often the woman, whether she's a member of the family or not, is at the bottom of it. Mm. Um, you know, we see that with daughter-in-laws all the time. Yes. Um, so yeah, I think that there are many ways that there are shared struggles for women across across class. Mm-hmm. Um, and and women who are employers of domestic help might be experiencing similar challenges to those who are working as domestic help, but it doesn't actually necessarily often bring them closer mm. together or able to empathize. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. Yeah, definitely. And I've, I've definitely observed that as well as um, it's almost like the same analogy where if you had a really nasty mother-in-law, then you end up becoming that very nasty mother-in-law yeah. <laughs> because it just is a generational continuation. I see the same kind of abuse happening with, with other women. And another thing that I've seen, uh, it almost seems like the maid becomes the, um, the, the, the punching bag, uh, whether that's literal or figurative, figurative is, if you have a fight with your husband, you never can directly speak to your husband, but you go and speak rudely to your maid. That's what they're there for, is just to take that. And and that and that that's something that's disturbing to me. But I've uh, observed that as as a, as a, as just a kind of a reality of uh, life in India in that hierarchy, like you mentioned, being at the bottom of the food chain. Yeah. Uh, I have a friend who she always right, talks about this in terms of like the hierarchy of shouting. So the hierarchy of shouting, uh, it's like a wave. You know, the boss at the office gets to shout at his male employee. The male employee will go home and shout at his wife. The wife may shout at the child or the maid if there's a maid. Um, mm-hmm. It's not really clear who the maid can shout at. Maybe at her own children. It's very hard to say. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. 
So yeah, there there is this hierarchy of who gets to take things out on who, mm-hmm. and you know, life in India has been it's challenging and has been especially challenging of late. So there's a lot of frustration and venting that people are taking out mm-hmm. on one another. But the issue of yeah, the issue of sort of women um, being able to be sympathetic or not. Uh, you know, I once I once interviewed somebody not related exactly to this book who's working with judges, with female judges and kind of sensitizing them on like maybe their own bias that they might have. And and one of, and so this woman told me that one judge said to her, you know, you know, maybe there is some of this there. You know, I always have had to go through a lot to get where I am. And so when I see another woman that doesn't seem to be willing to make those sacrifices, sometimes it's maybe hard for me to be sympathetic mm-hmm. w- with her. And I think sometimes you do see that. So there's this story that runs through the book about this young woman who came from Assam mm-hmm. to Delhi, uh, and she ends up uh, being the complainant in a case against her boss uh, for sexual assault. Um, and, you know, I really tried to follow that case through the legal system. I, I never was able to find out, meet that young woman herself or find out where um, she ended up. But, you know, there were many things in that legal process that I felt uh, in some ways were a disservice to to that woman and her family. Mm. Like, for example, some of the court hearing uh, documents named her, which they're not supposed to. They also, you know, they her mother had to come to identify her, explain the relationship. Uh, and the court uh, made the mother give documents showing how long she had lived mm. in a particular village and made her file it with the court. And as we all know, as we all see, having those documents is really important to people in a village to, to show mm-hmm. your tenure in a place, especially nowadays when relationship mm-hmm. is at stake. So I feel like doing things like that shows a real lack of knowledge and empathy with uh, people whose these documents are so important and you take it and you file it in your dusty court locker for whatever reason you could have taken an affidavit. Um, and you don't know how that might impact mm-hmm. that person's life down the line. So I feel like there are many ways in which um, even you know people who are part of the legal system who are supposed to be there to protect people's mm-hmm. rights do not understand the ways in which they, through these small things, uh, mm-hmm. could be hurting somebody mm-hmm. in, in a big way in the future. Yeah. Thank you for sharing about that. I recall that story and how tragic in some of the ways, the the stories that you shared in general, I think there was a bit of tragedy and you didn't quite know who to side with a lot of times. Like, oh, there's, this, is so, this is so complex. This, there's no good guy or bad guy here. There's no simple answers to any of this. And, and I appreciate you telling these stories from a, a very objective perspective, at least that I could tell without being too clinical about it. One one thing that I sort of came to realize, and which I think was sad, was that, you know, in some cases it seemed to me at the beginning like, oh, the wrong thing that's happening here is this woman is being kept from her family, and if she can reunite with her family, then everything will be fine, and she'll be happy, and they'll be happy. But, you know, sometimes, like, she was in a, the woman would be in a bad situation where she was working, but she also didn't necessarily want to reunite with her family because mm-hmm. maybe they had sent her off to work at a young age and now she was, for whatever reason, uh, mm-hmm. emotionally or culturally alienated from them. And um, mm-hmm. what did that person think would be the best outcome for her? To go back to a village or a family that she maybe didn't feel that close to anymore, mm-hmm. to stay where she was, to go work somewhere else. Like, I think what was sad is often it was uh, for so many young women, they were like kind of caught between other people's needs and... Yes. You know, didn't have any way yeah. to say or what they wanted or needed. themselves or, what they wanted or needed because your entire life has been oriented around the needs of others. Completely, yeah. Well, I'm, I'm really appreciative of how much 
just your journalistic style and how much effort and the way that you've crafted this, these beautiful stories together in that shows inequalities, but also shows just the complexities of these situations. And I really encourage everybody to pick this up, <laughs> get a copy digitally or paperback. Uh, and where can people find you? Where can people find your book and where can people find you? Tripti? Okay, hopefully my book is still available on Amazon.in. Uh, and I think it's available um, either as an ebook or you can order a, um, a physical copy. It's also available on Amazon.com. I think you can order Amazon prints, paper copies. Uh, I'm unsure whether it's still in bookshops at this point. I think it depends. In Delhi, it might be. I'm not so sure in other places. If anybody has read the book, I'm on Twitter. I'd love to, to hear from you and love to hear from your thoughts. And depending where you are, if it's, if it's a really hard to get book for you. Maybe I can try and help you out in some way. So yeah. So reach Great. out. Thank you so much. And what are, can you share anything? Are you working on anything new nowadays or is it mostly surviving COVID? <laughs> it's mostly surviving COVID. Although there are times when I want to, to write about my experiences mm -hmm. in the past year, but then I'm like, well, everybody had extraordinary experiences. Or am I more extraordinary than others? For me, the pandemic was actually bookended by two uh, kind of, hospitalization experiences involving my mom and they were really different than each other like one happened pre-covid and one post-covid and in that time period i guess it, the indian health system um really you know went through a lot of ups and downs and i so i do you know i saw a lot of the health system in this year um and i think um kind of want to process some of that by writing those thoughts down i don't know if it will ever be more than that but i think if i can even make time for that which is quite unlikely. <laughs> I think it would be helpful mm. to me to just process the last, yeah. um, the last year. Yeah, well, I think that any voices that we can have that can bring more clarity to the last year or two uh, would be helpful. And uh, just the way that you, you know, you don't need my validation, but I, I love the way you write and it just makes so much sense to me. It took me actually, admittedly, it took me a long time to get through this because there was so much. I mean, I'm just highlighting and wanting to reference and and um, and wanting to have discussions and process <laughs> so many portions of this. So also, uh, thank you for what you do. Now that my own eyesight is deteriorating, I feel like the print is quite small. <laughs> so that may have been about <laughs> uh, why it's, uh, <laughs> it takes a while. You had to fit a lot in here, 300 pages of Indian culture at your fingertips. So, all right. Well, thank you so much, Tripti. I really appreciate everything that you do. And, um, and, and everyone go out and check out Made in India. Follow Tripti on Twitter. And, uh, yeah, we hope you can share this episode with other people if you enjoyed this. And, uh, of course, you can subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, anywhere that you find podcasts. So follow us on social media as well. InvisibleIndiaPodcast.com is where you can find me. And of course, you can write to me with questions, comments, or anything else, feedback on this episode there through my contact. All right. Well, thank you so much, Tripti. And until uh, next time, we have another conversation once you write your new book. <laughs> thank you so much. I really enjoyed talking to you about this. Right, same. If you made it all the way to the end of this show, you are in for a surprise. Tripti has offered to give away a free signed hard copy of her book to listeners of the show. Go ahead and check out our social media to see rules for the contest of how you can win. Go on our Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, 
and TikTok to see how you can win a copy. Okay, thanks so much for listening. Feel free to check out all the resources I mentioned. Everything is listed in the show notes here. And then, of course, on my website, invisibleindiapodcast.com slash offers for the offers. And just the main page for the free download. The music for the Invisible India podcast is performed by Christopher Halen Sitar and Ed Henley on Tabla on Rob Bean Palacio.